You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. This is a great text that shows us so much of God. Because we look at this text and we see a woman who has been provoked by Elkanah's second wife because she had children and Hannah was barren. But we also know from the previous verses that it was God who had closed her womb. So here... Hannah is petitioning before the Lord. So as we consider this, we look at the essence of first what God was going to do through his providence. Second, we look at God's maidservant, Hannah, who loved her husband, but primarily his love, her love for God was her first love. Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, sitting by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Now, Eli was old. Later on, we see just how old he was. He was in his 90s at this time. So, sometime in this vicinity, he had lost his way. His children were wicked. Hophni and Phinehas were wicked men. They stood outside the temple, waited for the young women to come to offer sacrifices, and he, they would seduce these women. As well, they took the sacrificial offerings and took the best parts for themselves. And then they also gave some to Eli their father. So he partook in this. And later on, we'll see the rebuke that he gives, but it's mild compared to the wickedness of his sons. As Hannah prayed, she pledged. She made a a vow in this prayer. So it actually has two parts, but the prayer itself was a vow. So as we look at this, one part of this made provision from the ancient Nazarite vow. In Numbers, we find this, Numbers 6, 1 through 9. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When man or woman makes a special vow of a Nazarite to dedicate himself to the Lord, He shall drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink, nor shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine. From the seeds and even to the skin, all the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall pass over his head. 
He shall be holy until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself unto the Lord. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long all the days of his separation to the Lord. He shall not go near a dead person. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother or for his brother or for his sister when they die because his separation to God on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. But if a man dies very suddenly beside him and he defiles his dedicated head of hair, then he shall shave his head on the day when he becomes clean. He shall shave it on the seventh day. Well, it's not clear whether Hannah was making a promise here that entailed all the provisions of the Nazarite vow. If it had, her son, her son Samuel, would have, he wasn't Samuel yet, but the vow for a son also may have required him to abstain from wine or any products of grapes and not come in contact that would cause ceremonial defilement. When he was talking about the death of a brother or father or mother, he was talking about putting a hand on a dead body. That would defile the Nazarite vow. So they wouldn't allow that. both parts of Hannah's vow consecrated her son for life, not just for a short period of time while they served in the temple, but this was a lifelong vow. She was giving her son, if God were to give her a son, to the Lord. Dedication for life. Levites, as we've seen, took turns serving in the tabernacles. No one had the responsibility for life. Nazarite vows were usually only temporary also. Of course, God had expressly commanded Samson's mother to make him a a Nazarite for life. That was in Judges chapter 13, verses 2 through 7. Since Samson's mother had been barren before Samson was conceived, Hannah's knowledge of this history would have been part of the prompting of this vow. John the Baptist also seemed to be under the same similar lifelong vow in Luke chapter 7. Normally, such a vow lasted maybe for a few weeks, possibly for a few years. Hannah obviously wanted her son to be a godly man serving and glorifying the Lord all his days. Complete separation. Ron. Was uh, Samuel a Nazarite, though? No, that, that was actually setting apart somebody, and they went through, uh, it was part of the ceremonial law. So a Nazarite would be a person who was dedicated and to the priesthood, to serve God. And that dedication was part of these parameters in which they had to live under. So here, she could have made a dedication for him to be a Nazarite. She didn't do that. But her dedication was that he would be 
lifelong servant of God, whatever God would have him to be. In this case, we'll see as we go on how he became a prophet of God. <clears throat> the intensity of Hannah's prayer made her conspicuous in the tabernacle. As she did so, uh, that was such a backslidden error that the high priest didn't even recognize that this woman was a woman of God in prayer. But also the confusion may have been part of it anyway because during that period, Israelites, when they went to a temple, they would pray out loud. So that could have been part of the confusion because that is how they prayed. When they went to the temple to worship, they would pray audibly. Here, she knew that God would hear her prayer. She didn't have to do it audibly. But Eli, while watching her mouth, as for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, how long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. Eli's insensitive response was really typical of him at this point in his life. He was the high priest, and yet he had allowed wickedness in his family. He lacked any sense of discernment as well as basic courtesy. He could have, if he thought that that was the case, he could have escorted her out, spoke with her privately, but he audibly called her out in the temple, which is rude and in, inconsiderate. Now, this also happened, remember, at time in Acts chapter 2? Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in their own tongue speaking of mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. That was in Acts chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Eli evidently didn't recognize at all this prayer of silence that Hannah was offering up to the Lord. Another thing that caused confusion was Eli's lack of discernment. He knew that his sons had defiled the temple in which God was to be worshipped. Eli did not approve of his son's wicked behavior, but he failed to take strong measures to prevent any further wickedness being carried out. So Eli's rebuke to Hannah was foolish and it was uncalled for. Eli had long before disqualified himself as a high priest, but yet he carried out the functions of a high priest. Eli and Hannah, there's a sharp contrast between the two. Hannah, loving God. Eli, a priest that tolerated wickedness and filled that position knowing so. In verses 15 and 16, but Hannah replied, No, my lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. 
I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Hannah defended herself. In addition to explaining Hannah's intense emotional behavior, her words also make it clear that there were probably other women around that temple that really deserved that type of rebuke. And yet Hannah's heart was toward the Lord. <clears throat> when he used the term uh, worthless woman, or she did, uh, there was speaking of out of great anxiety and vexation, Hannah was. But she was not a worthless woman in verse 16. Literally, worthless woman uh, referred to one who was a daughter of Belial, which would have been Satan. So that was the Hebrew word and the manner which they described her, or he tried to describe her, a woman of destruction. So in addition to explaining Hannah's intense and emotional behavior, her words made it clear that she didn't deserve this rebuke from a high priest. Hannah demonstrated her godliness as well as her grace and humility when she referred to herself as your maidservant. Consider that. She's one who is married to Elkanah and of good standing, and yet of lowly reputation. Her reputation was not known because she was barren as Elkanah's wife, and yet she considers herself before this priest, high priest, Eli, as a maidservant. That's the humility that this woman showed. She didn't try to confront his position or point out any of the sinfulness of his sons, she simply submitted to the position of high priest and called herself a maidservant. She was a humble woman. Well, the contrast between Eli and Hannah will be more telling when we examine further the sons. Here's a kind of an ironic role reversal in Scripture. We would expect Eli, a man who held the highest spiritual position of God's holy nation, Israel. He was a high priest. That was a position that was revered by even other Levites. So he, he was a man that was, should have been a fully committed, dedicated, consecrated man Serving God, that wasn't the case at all. So it's, we're seeing this great, great contrast between Hannah and the high priest Eli. Hannah being the one set apart for God. It is Hannah, not the high priest, that is the spiritual figure in this text. And it really matters if she is humble as well, <clears throat> because she is now seeking God 
to give her and grant her a son. We see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Eli displayed his lack of spiritual discernment in his rebuke. He saw her lips moving, but no, no sound. Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips were moving. How often do we as Christians perhaps inappropriately judge another by some misunderstanding of an outward appearance? That happens. In Matthew chapter 7, of course, we're familiar with this. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured out to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Matthew 7, 1 through 3. Understanding this, we should, this is a, the word for judge or discern is, it comes from one of the words of understanding or knowledge of. And comes from the word gnosis. But as we consider the word judge, here, God's people were being warned not to judge another brother or sister in a critical manner. But we should be discerning. That type of judgment is encouraged, not only in, in Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 and Thessalonians, many passages about bringing correction and reproof and restoring one. But here, this is talking about a critical judgment, one who is looking just critically at another without discerning the essence of what they're doing. <clears throat> Yes, Ron. When Eli was the high priest, finally would do a, a sacrifice in the Holy of Holies, I would think God would have taken out that like how did that Well we'll see what God does with him. He actually preserved him for a reason. So it's gonna unfold as we go through further in first Samuel. That's a good question. The question from Ron was if he was a high priest and he was such a carnal man, and his children are so wicked, why did God allow him in this place? Which is a good question. We have to understand that we don't always understand God's providence. In this case, we're going to see that God preserved him because he was going to punish him. He was going to kill him. But not yet. When Hannah said, my Lord, she showed respect for Eli, the high priest. Eli's response simply implies that he had not recognized a woman of God, but he thought she was a worthless woman, a wicked woman, having considered her to be drunk in the temple of God. Then Eli answered in verse 17 and said, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked. She said, let your maidservant 
find favor in your sight. So the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This text tells us much about Hannah. She was sad, she was perplexed, she was not perplexed, but she was anguishing over the continual chiding from Penina, Elkanah's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Elkanah's second wife, because she had children and Hannah had none. So she was brokenhearted to a point of just crying out to God. After she did that, notice the change in her. So the woman went away and she ate. Remember, she couldn't even eat when she got to that point where she went to the temple. She wouldn't eat. Here, her face was no longer sad. She had a complete peace because she offered this prayer, which was also a vow to God. She could completely entrust him, whatever his answer might be. That is where she got the peace. It was the peace of God, knowing the God that she served. Now, as we look at this, we, we say, well, this is God's sovereignty. Yes. But we really can't separate God from the essence of who God is. It's not just his providence. Yes, Peter. Yes, very good. Peter's asking in the case of Eli, when he was rebuking Hannah, he really didn't have a place to do so because of his own sinfulness. In Galatians chapter 6, in verses 1 and 2, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In that verse, it encapsulates both. It talks about one who is in a snare, that is, a person in sin and entrapped in it and in need of somebody coming alongside, reproving, correcting, and rebuking. But it's also talking about if you're going to do so, that you do so in the spirit of gentleness and looking to yourself so that you too might not be tempted. So one could be critical and judgmental in a critical manner rather than in a discerning manner. So that could be reversed. Hannah could have respectfully said, Sir, I, I love my God and I'm entreating him for a son. I've been barren. She could have explained all the history to him and God could have used that, of course, to bring repentance, but that's not what happened. God allowed him to rebuke her to show the sharp contrast between what Hannah was doing and what this Eli, high priest, was doing. So, does that answer your question? It could be that every time we see a corrective text in Scripture, well, it's always about restoring. When we rebuke somebody, it isn't to try to make them feel bad. It's 
to bring them to repentance. The whole purpose is restoration. And of course, Matthew 18, you go through the whole process, and if the individual isn't restored, you put him out. For what reason? To bring him to the knowledge of Christ or repentance. The whole process of church discipline, the whole process of trying to restore brother or sister is for their well-being. It's not to put them out in shame, but to put them out for the purpose of that they would be convicted by their sin. Uh, Peter was just asking, is there a way we can reach somebody in this context that he was talking about evangelistically, the unregenerate, when they're saying, well, why would you judge me? We would also point out that we're all sinners, that it was only by God's grace that I can stand here before you because I'm just as wicked as any other man apart from God's saving grace. As we go on, when Eli gave her this blessing, she fully recognized God's sovereign hand in this. And yet, as we look at this whole thing further, we'll be examining not just God's providence, but his omnipotence, omniscience, his mercy, his justice, all these things we're going to see the evidences of. God doesn't just appear or do an act in one form of his essence. He is complete in all of his attributes. So as we look at these texts, we see all of the attributes of God in full bloom. He is acting in his essence to carry out his will so that he will be glorified in this. Hannah believed Eli because she was trusting that he was a mediator with God. It was not his personal character that Hannah trusted, but it was the representation of the mediation that God would provide through him. So she had been in a place where she could be even more sorrowful because this priest rebuked her. But instead, after he discovered it wasn't, wasn't being drunk, but she was rather entreating the Lord in her sorrow and anguish. So God did use Eli in this case to make this proclamation. So she recognized he was the high priest. He wasn't the example in his own life. But he held that position and God was able to speak through him this response. She was able to leave the request in God's hands and she was at complete peace. She went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. Verse 18, she experienced the blessing of this Renewed faith, and MacArthur refers to this text in Hebrews. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the convictions of things not yet seen. That's Hebrews 11, 1. So as we look at this, I'm quoting some of the various commentators, but MacArthur gave an excellent commentary on this, not on the book of Samuel, but in the book that I referred to last week about God's faithful women. As we go through this, we have to also remember Hannah could leave everything with God. She now had no burden at all. wouldn't matter what Peninnah tried to chide her with. She had her assurance of what God was going to do, whether he gave her a child or not. He was sovereign. She knew that because she was his child. She knew God. Whereas later we see Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they knew not God. These men were unregenerate, and yet they shouldn't have been in the, doing the things they did at the temple site. <clears throat> the Apostle Peter gives us this counsel, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Hannah knew that she wanted to have a son. She knew that that son would be given back to God. He would be set apart all his days. That was her request. It wasn't really selfish at all. She wanted to have a son, which was her desire, but she also wanted that son to glorify God. She didn't want a son just to have a son. She wanted a son that would bring glory to God all his days. James gave us some, a couple of warnings. In James chapter 4, he said, You lust and do not have. You commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you are asking with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. James 4, 2, and 3. Then he goes on in chapter 5 and said, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So as we see the admonition on one side of the text, and then the final chapter, he talks about the righteous prayer, the effective prayer of a righteous individual, a righteous believer. Matthew Henry says this, referring to Hannah's prayer, the prayer came from her heart as the tears from her eyes. That says it all. She was praying from her heart, and the tears flowed, but she had put it, put her trust and faith in the God that she served. Hannah's simple yet uh, profound prayer reflected her complete trust in God and his immensity. We sometimes really have a low view of God. Some may not consider the almighty God that we serve in all his attributes. We look at this simple yet amazing prayer and we see God's omnipresence, his omniscience, his immutability, as well as his sovereignty. Just in this one passage, it reveals all this of our Lord. 
Verse 19, then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Hannah not only believed that God would answer her prayer, but she acted upon that belief. She cast all her sorrow out. She returned. She loved her husband, continued to love him. And through that relationship, the Lord remembered her. Verse 20 It came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son. Here we have God's answer. God closed her womb. God opened her womb. I think that it would be important at this point to consider questions that some may have. Many women have prayed equally earnest prayers, yet do not have a child. Does this mean somehow that they are not as faithful as another believer? Not at all. One commentator by the name of Blakely said this. In 1 Samuel, in spite of all the objections and difficulties, we maintain that God is the hearer of prayer. Every sincere prayer offered in the name of Christ is heard and dealt with by God in such a way as he sees fit. It is not what we want when we pray. God's will. We may have a desire. God welcomes our petitions as long as we're in heart, our right relationship with him. And he desires us to pray to him. He wants to give us. He wants to bless us. He wants to give us things that we're abundantly blessed. But that's not the motive for our prayer. Not what God will give us. But that God's will would be carried out. And that's exactly what Hannah was praying for. It's true that some prayers aren't answered because they're offered in a wrong spirit or with selfish motives or by a person who is in sin. And as James referred earlier, others may not be answered because God knows that that may be harmful to them. How many times have we looked back and prayed for something and realized, wow, God would have answered that the way I wanted it. It wouldn't have ended up too well. God's sovereign over this, and we want his will. We can all think of those instances. We know that Hannah reasoned with God in a believing manner. She didn't wait, and she didn't have to wait till God answered her prayer before she had joy. She had the joy of God because she left it in his hands. It's hard for any of us. If we are attacked or we have some type of a loss, family member, have a loss of a friendship, or we're seen as doing something that maybe it wasn't as it appeared, and there's a conflict, it can affect any of us. And yet, when we go to the Lord, and we're right with God, and we petition, may not mean that things are going to be reconciled, but we should do everything on our part to reconcile. And recognizing that the responsibility we have is obedience to God. And whether it's an unregenerate person or a family member that's 
perhaps not knowing God, we can be hurt, just as Hannah was in different ways. And yet we have, and we have our love for God, and we know that he has providentially put us in a place where not only we can be a testimony for him, because we have in Christ the means to forgive and the means to love, and we have Christ in us, who is able to accomplish more than we could ask for or dream. <clears throat> the key to Hannah's prayer is she knew the Lord. She began by naming him the Lord of hosts, the Almighty God who is able to overcome every difficulty in answering prayer. But her experience in casting her burden upon God expresses her complete trust, and it caused her to even have a greater trust in God. Just as Hagar called the name of El Roi, you are a God who sees when she realized that God saw her in Genesis 16:13, and as Abraham named the place Yahweh Yaira, the Lord will provide when he saw God provide the ram and the sacrifice that he had to offer. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Hannah also commemorated God's grace just with the name that she used. Now here's where some scholars have some debate. The commentaries that I use were all Reformed theologians, and they came up with various interpretations of Samuel. MacArthur, his uh, explanation of Samuel's name was that it meant name of God. That's what MacArthur's interpretation was. So Hannah, uh, she said, heard by God. She used that term. She said, I've asked for, from the Lord, and I have asked from the Lord, and God heard her. In uh, Kiel and Dilch, in their exegetical commentary, I don't want to get too complicated because I'm not capable of doing that, but they, he refers to this. In the, days of, in the revolution of days, which means the period of her conception and pregnancy, that's the terminology that was used, Hannah conceived and bore a son, whom she called Samuel, for he said, for she said, I have asked of him the Lord. This was not formed from the name of God, but from heard of God. So the Latin term for that is adeo exoda, ex audis, auditus. I had to ask Cornell. He's got some of the Latin experience. Scholars debate for the precise meaning of this name for Samuel, since the name forms several letters that could have been taken a number of different ways in the Hebrew. One solution means the name of God, the idea being it's God's gift. And most naturally, however, the name is taken to mean God hears. This is reflected in Hannah's explanation. She named Samuel, 
God hears because I have asked him from the Lord. So whenever we think of Samuel going somewhere, wherever Samuel went, his name was a testimony of who he was and who he would proclaim. So as we think of the essence of how God worked through this woman, how it didn't happen that she was not barren for nothing. She was barren for God's purpose. He did that to glorify himself. And further, he did so with the son that he provided for her. So as we think of this, we, we see God's preeminent in the whole plan from beginning to end. So we are working here towards what we are going to see later in, as we approach First and Second Samuel. We'll see the Davidic covenant, the line of Christ coming forth as we go through this marvelous historical narrative. So we just close right now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've provided in this historical narrative and how great is your omniscience and how great your omnipotence, how great are all of your attributes that you display vividly in your word. As we see your hand upon your servants, we thank you, Father, because we know that you are also immutable the same yesterday, today, and always. We, we worship you, Father, as we continue this service, and we thank you for the wondrous work that you have done through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified as we continue in the preaching and the proclamation of your word and also in our song and praise. In all that we do, may you be lifted up and glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.